Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and you can find it on page 171 in the Paper Bibles. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the de deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of, of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Jer Jerubbabel, and Jerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, the Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Iliad, and Iliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so good morning. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Stephen, and it's, uh, it's my privilege to uh, start off our Advent series, uh, which we're going to be in, in the next four months, I mean four weeks, as we approach Christmas. Uh, this week we are zooming in on the theme of hope. But before we do so, I just want to take a very important poll. Um, and if this question pertains to you, I just want you to be, you know, boldly just raise your hand, okay? So the question I want to ask is, how many of us in this room already started listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? Yeah, right? And on the other spectrum, how many of us in this room are still kind of waiting? You know, even this morning, we felt a little uncomfortable listening to the Advent music. We, we're just a little, we don't, I don't like it, okay? You know, and I know this is very important. It's a serious debate with serious ramifications. Relationships have been torn apart. Enemies have been forged over the Christmas music etiquette debates. So I want to shed some light on this issue. You see, if you look at the Christian calendar where Christmas emerges, you'll find that we are nowhere near Christmas right now. In fact, the first today is the first day of the season before Christmas season. And so if you're sitting next to someone who raised their hand that we're listening to Christmas music, just very lovingly just reach out to them and say, too soon, okay, just too soon. You see, if you look at, um, so let me start like this. So if we begin today as the first day of the Advent season, 
And we find that in this season, uh, we are stuck right in the middle of two realities. Because we, as we enter into the season, we are reminded that there was an arrival, the birth of Jesus Christ. And we look back to what has already happened, but we also look forward to what will happen. In other words, during Advent, we do two kinds of waiting. The first kind is a type of representative type of waiting where we let ourselves go back into the story before Jesus the Messiah comes into the world. We identify with ancient Israel and we wait and we long for Messiah to come and deliver them. The other kind of waiting is more literal and is very real for us right now. It's a waiting for Jesus' second return, second coming, the one where he has promised to return and make things right. You know, as Christians, Advent can be one of the most meaningful seasons for us. You know, I love Christmas music. I mean, I like Christmas music as much as the next guy. Um, and I think the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing aloud for all to hear like Buddy the Elf. But I think that if we are holding on to Christmas a little too early, we miss out on the time marked out by the church to name the wounds of the world and to cry out to God, Oh God, Oh Lord, how long will you let this go on until you return? So we cry out with expectation for his response. It's also a time to remember that Jesus was born in a time of violence and terror. Did you know that when Jesus was born, and a lot of Christmas narratives leave this out because it's a little dark, but did you know that when Jesus was born, that the current king at the time, King Herod, had, because he was so threatened, had all the kids under, under the age of two killed? It was a very, very dark time. And this is the world that Jesus was born into. And this is also part of the Christmas narrative. So in Advent, we're going to get into that uncomfortable space, and we're going to let ourselves dwell there for a bit. So the way I want to begin this morning is to have three different plot movements. Uh, first, I want to talk about the world that Jesus came into. Next, I want to talk about waiting and hope. And lastly, I want to talk about how our hopes are secure in Jesus. So let's get right into it, the world that Jesus came into. If you have your Bibles with you, just place a marker at Genesis 3.15. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And as we turn there, let me just quickly address if you're not a Christian and you're not aware of the Christian doctrine and you're not familiar with the Christian uh, way that we view the world, let me just catch you up real quick. We believe that God created everything and it was all good. So everything that has been created, everything that exists, was created by God and it is good. But it was never meant to terminally end on itself. Rather, it was to lead to greater joy as it leads to worship of God. So for example, uh, Christians believe God created food, right? And so not only does he create food, but he also creates the flavors. And when all these amazing flavors are mixed together, it creates new flavors. And so this was God's gift to mankind, not only sustaining their lives, but also letting them enjoy the sustenance of their lives. You know, according to the Bible, before sin fractured the universe, food would lead to enjoyment. But that enjoyment would kick up a notch as we dwell on the reality that God really is good enough to give us food, as well as create food that is enjoyable. So food and eating was, to was meant to create in us worship in the hearts of men and women. It was never meant to create the worship of food, but the worship of the God who granted, designed, and provided the food. So God created everything, and it was good, but sin entered into the world, and it fractured everything on every level imaginable. 
all of God's beautiful and good creation was fractured and the human soul as well was fractured. So now instead of worshiping and being drawn to the creator, we're drawn to creation. And as one Old Testament scholar writes, we place the weight of our joy on creation, which can't bear it. So let's talk about food again. No longer does food lead us to a greater level of joy uh, in the worship of God who graciously gives it to us. Instead, we become indifferent entitlement. It becomes an indifferent entitlement, meaning like we just look at food and we're like, oh, so what? It's, it's just food. Or it becomes God. It becomes gluttony. So that next time we're angry or frustrated, instead of turning to God, we turn to food. We turn to cake. Why? Because you've taken what was created to lead you to God and you've placed the weight of your joy on something that is supposed to lead you to God, but it can't sustain that joy, so it's going to always leave you feeling empty. So as sin enters the world and fractures it, God steps in and condemns the serpent as well as Adam and Eve and lists what that condemnation will look like. I want for us to look at what God says to the serpent And this is what he says in Genesis 3.15. If you had your finger there, we're going to read it now. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, you don't have to be a big MMA guy to know that a crushed head loses to a bruised heel every time. In other words, you see, the woman will give birth to a son who will put to death once and for all, everything that has gone wrong when sin has entered into this world. So this is the world that Jesus steps into. This is a broken world. It is a fallen place. And God's people have been waiting for hundreds of years and hundreds of years for the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And so what we find in our sermon text in Matthew 1 is that Matthew is setting the scene to introduce the hope of the world, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, personally, if I were writing one of the Gospels and introducing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I probably wouldn't start with the genealogy. Why? Because I honestly feel like no one would read it. If we're being honest, many of us, how many of us picked up the Gospel of Matthew, thinking that it would be an easy read, knowing that's a narrative, went to the beginning and encountered Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was, and then just kind of went down to verse 8, the birth of Jesus took place like this and said, finally, some sentences, right? It's hard for us in our culture today um, to be interested in genealogies. But genealogies were a deep, integral part for the Jewish society in ancient Israel. So the names in in Matthew's genealogy, like Judah, Ruth, David, Hezekiah, would immediately evoke in Matthew's readers a whole range of stories that they had learned while they were being brought up, stories of their own heritage. Genealogies provided families honor, and it also provided defined inheritance rights as well. So by evoking these great heroes like David or Josiah, you see Matthew was pointing to, he was telling his readers that this is all pointing to a greater hero to whom all these other stories pointed to. You see, for Matthew and a circle of Jewish Christians, Jesus was not just an afterthought to Judaism. One Old Testament scholar notes that though we might miss it today, Matthew's Jewish audience would have known right away that Matthew's making a big statement with his first phrase, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You see, Matthew knows how 
the genealogies work in the Old Testament. Like it would say the genealogy of so-and-so, and so it would have the person's name and his descendants would be listed out after him. But what Matthew does here is instead of writing down Jesus' descendants, he writes down his ancestors. Matthew's point here is profound. So much is Jesus the focal point of history that it's his ancestors that depend on him for meaning. It's the complete reversal. In other words, God has sovereignly directed the history of Israel and he has preserved the Davidic line because of his plan to bring in and send Jesus. Now I want, now I want to talk about waiting and hope. And we're going to read uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, These are the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, if you have a background in church, you might know that people waited a long time for Jesus Christ to come. They waited hundreds of years. God came to David and said, David, someone in your line will sit on the throne forever. Right? God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, come out of your tent. You see all those stars? I will bless you. And your, 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 your sons will be more than the stars in the skies, more than the seas, more than the uh, sand on the seashore right? And in your seed, all the nations of the world will, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. However, it wasn't for 2,000 more years that Jesus came on the scene. In fact, in the 400 years prior to Jesus' birth, it was silence. There were no prophets. So can you imagine just years and years out, there were always prophets saying, guys, things are really bad, but don't worry, there's a Savior coming. And then guys, once again, things aren't looking good for you, but don't worry, God is sending a Messiah. But then, 400 years, and it's just complete silence. There are no prophets. And it appears that God has forgotten his promise. This genealogy teaches us that God does not act according to your calendar or the timetable that you have created for him. Now, let me tell you why that's so hard for us to get that in 2016. So, I turned 30 this year, so I'm not that old, but I'm not that young either, right? But let me tell you what I, but here's what I can tell you, that when I was a kid, when I wanted to watch a movie, we had to look at the newspaper to find the movie listing. And if you didn't do that, you had no choice but to call the movie theater, and what you would get is an automated message that would actually list out every movie in the theater and also the movie showing times. Um, and I just remember, you wouldn't dare make a noise when someone was on the phone because if you missed it, you'd have to listen to everything all over again. So my dad, after hearing the message like maybe three times, he got very frustrated and he put the phone down and he's like, that's it. We're leaving in 15 minutes and whatever movie's playing, we're going to watch it. And that's precisely how our family ended up watching Forrest Gump in the summer of 94. But that was the life, that was the way that was life as I knew it as a kid. And right now, we have all the information that we need right in our cell phones, right? And we're trained in our current environment to get whatever we want, whenever we want, as quickly as we want it. So I also remember in youth group, and youth group, we would meet at church on Friday nights, and we would get into these arguments that you could only get in a youth group. So where someone would come along in the youth group and they, they would say like, oh, I love that song, I could sing of your love forever. Who wrote that again? And I would say, oh, that's, uh, that's by Martin Smith from Delirious. He wrote the song. And then some other, my friend named Chris, he would be like, actually, it's Sonic Flood. And at that point, 
there was no way to confirm who was right. You see, that we just, you just simply have to wait until someone more knowledgeable came along, but we just didn't know. Like, that doesn't happen anymore because now we have all the information that we need. We could just simply Google it. And so because our environment trains us that way, most of us get extremely agitated when we have to be patient for something beyond what we deem is reasonable. Even secular scientists are beginning to tell us that our brains are being rewired by current technology, and that's really making us more impatient than ever. So we go back to the Word of God, and we read the promises that he laid out. And we see that although God's people waited for 2,000 years, and although the 400 years prior to Jesus' birth was completely silent, and it looked like God had forgotten, we read this genealogy, and we are reminded that God is good, that he has not forgotten, he is faithful to keep his word, and even though he operates on a time that is different from what you and I might expect. Now, if you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian, and uh, I'm a believer, but I don't know if God's promises apply to me. And maybe they shouldn't, because I've really made a mess of my life. Well, I want us to look to the genealogy again. In verse 2, I want you to put your finger on Jacob. It says, Jacob, the father of Judah. Do you guys know how Jacob had Judah? He lied. He basically disguised himself as his older brother Esau to steal the birthright, right? And what did that do? That fractured his family. It tore his family apart. He had to live a life of a fugitive because his brother was out to kill him. So he was on the run, living each day, knowing that someone was out to kill him. But it's in this life that he meets the love of his life, Rachel. And it's from this union that the Messiah comes. You see, that means that even though Jacob messed up his life with sin, and there were real consequences, and what he did was absolutely wrong, what we learn is that God does not put your life on plan B. See, Rachel was not plan B. The Messiah was not plan B. The genealogy shows that God is working out his purposes, and he will fulfill his promises. I want to get to my last point, and we're going to do this by uh, looking at who is in the genealogy. So if we're going to just quickly recap, for Matthew's original audience, genealogy was extremely important. Uh, your genealogy was your family. It's where you got your honor from. So now we're going to take a moment to see who God puts in Jesus' family, the Savior of the world. And there are three things that I want us to catch here. Number one, there are women in Jesus' family. Number two, there are Gentiles in Jesus' family. Number three, there are sinners in Jesus' family. Number one, women in the family of Jesus. You have to realize how scandalous this would have been back then. See, women were not included in the genealogies. I know, right? It was only the fathers and their sons. But God says the Messiah is proud of the women in his family. And the status will and the status of women will forever be changed by the coming of this Messiah. Second, Jesus is proud of Gentiles in his family. See, at the time, Orthodox Jews despised Gentiles. Like, they would not even walk where the Gentiles walked because they were afraid that they might touch what the Gentiles touched. And, and because that would make them dirty and they, would unable to be, uh, they would be unable to go in the presence of God because they would be ceremoniously unclean. They despised the Gentiles. But what is the Messiah saying? In his genealogy, we see that Gentiles like Rahab, 
Gentiles like Ruth are included, and Jesus is saying, I am proud of the people from the wrong pedigree. I am proud of the people from the wrong class and proud of the people from the wrong race. Three, there are sinners in the family of Jesus. Now, this one's a little bit intense. Do you guys know who Tamar is? Uh, Judah and Tamar are listed in the genealogy. If you have a background in church, you know where I'm getting at. Judah and Tamar had children, and the Messiah comes from that union. Tamar is Judah's sister. This was an incestuous relationship, and from this union, Jesus comes. Furthermore, Rahab, not only was she a Gentile, she was also a prostitute. But Matthew keeps on going. He also mentions Uriah's wife, Bathsheba by name. And so once again, if you have a background in church, you know that this is probably like, this is putting King David on blast for all of history to see. Because if you know King David, like the big dark cloud on his legacy is the fact that when he was king, he looked down, he saw a beautiful woman, knew that she was married, but took her for himself. And in order to keep her, basically ordered the death of her husband. He murdered her husband. And it's through that union that the messianic line continues. All of these people are unfit for the presence of God according to Deuteronomy 23. They are ritually unclean. But Jesus is proud of them. They had faith, they gave of themselves, and now they're in the genealogy of the Savior of the universe. So what does this mean for us? It means I don't care what your background is. I don't care where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. The love and grace of God is extended to you. It means that anyone, no matter what you did, no matter how bad you think you are, you can still receive it. The gospel says rest. It says stop your hiding. It says to rest because you really are a sinner. It's true. But the, the gospel points out that it's not what you do, but it's what Jesus did in his life, death and resurrection. The gospel is telling us today to rest. Rest in what Jesus did. And once you do, you'll find true rest. Romans 4, 5 says, Now to him who works not, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, your faith is credit to you as righteousness. In this Advent season, our hope in this time of year is that God keeps his promises, has always kept his promises, and has not left us nor abandoned us. Let's pray. Dear Father God, in this uh, Advent season, we look back and remember that you kept good on your promise by sending Jesus. And we look forward with longing and hope and expectation for Jesus' return. And this time we know that it won't be in a manger. We know that when he returns again, that he'll come as king to judge the living and the dead. God, we wait with expectation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.